This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. If you have not listened to the previous chapters, please do so. We are releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate. Torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. Each episode features a chapter from the novel, a rough draft if you will, read by the author Bruce Janning. New chapters will be written throughout the life of this podcast until the novel is complete. Join the discussion, make suggestions at lilacwinenovel.com. Stay tuned after the reading for further information about the chapter you just heard. And now, Lilac Wine. Chapter 3 Robert Bishop knew that President McKinley was going to die. Although he was merely three years old at the time, he had a vivid dream of a burly man smiling, walking among the trains. Another man with a handkerchief wrapped around his hand approached, and when the two met, fire exploded from the handkerchief, and Robert woke up screaming, causing his mother to rush into the room to comfort her child. He couldn't articulate the experience to his parents, nor did he understand its significance at the time. After all, he was only three and really didn't even know who the president was. It was only later, after hearing his parents discuss the assassination, that he remembered the dream from years earlier and pieced the chronology together. After nearly 16 years, that image has not left his mind. If that had been his only experience with such an event, he would have chalked it up to coincidence and forgotten about it. But over the years, Robert had similar premonitions. He knew, for example, that his father was going to die of a heart attack. The image came to him in a dream he had while dozing in school during a grammar lesson. When he came home that day, he found his mother in tears in the front room, his uncle calmly stroking her back. Some imagery in his dreams was nonsense, probably like most people's, he reckoned. But here and there... He would have terrifyingly real dreams, dreams that would hint at a truth yet to come. Sometimes they were cryptic, sometimes urgent and very real. Two years ago, for example, he woke up in a cold sweat, a cacophony of screams still ringing in his ears. He had seen water and bodies, children trapped in dark spaces, gasping for air that was non-existent hands clawing on walls, bubbles and rushes of dark brown water, the swirling hair and vacant eyes of a woman floating, angelic-like in water, eclipsing the shimmering light from above. That was it. He didn't know if it was some horrible accident yet to come or another torpedoed luxury liner in the war. All he knew was that something horrible was going to happen and there was nothing he could do about it. That was the worst of it, the feeling of helplessness in his gut. People 
were going to die, and there was nothing he could do, because he never knew when or where. He always lacked details. He had only been working at his uncle's piano factory for a couple of months in 1915 when the alarms were raised in the city. The shop was located on Wabash Avenue, just a few blocks south of the river. His workday was only a half hour old, and he was sweeping sawdust on the floor of the sanding and planing room when it happened. And he knew. That same feeling he had when he awoke a couple of nights earlier found itself again in the pit of his gut. The Eastland was packed with workers headed for a company picnic in Indiana when it capsized in the river, still tethered to the dock. It was top-heavy, loaded with workers and their families. Close to 850 people died that day, and although he didn't necessarily know the specifics, Robert knew it was going to happen. He ran down to the river when he heard someone on the street outside of the shop yell about the capsized boat. People crowded along the river trying to get a view of the helpless ship. It lay on its side in the water, survivors standing on its hull, some desperately clinging to the side. A few spectators even jumped in to try and pull to safety some of those who were exhausted and struggling to swim, their clothes heavy with the weight of water. A small six-year-old boy was a lone passenger of a lifeboat, floating listlessly among the bodies. Robert stood, helpless on a garbage barrel, watching the carnage, watching people braver than himself pull victims from the murky water. Feigning illness, he didn't go back to work that day, but spent the morning drinking beer in Conrad Mueller's tavern, just a block from the Leland Hotel where he was renting a room for the summer months. At that moment, he didn't care about work. The piano business was slow, and his uncle merely offered him the job to help him back on his feet following the death of his mother. Funny, he knew when his father was going to die, but his mother's death came as a complete surprise. One day she was fine, the next day she was in bed with a high fever. Three days later, he was at her funeral. Life is funny that way. Two years later, and there he was, still tending to the piano business, still renting a room at the Leland Hotel. He could have stayed in his home, but it was too big, too lonely. He went there occasionally to check up on things, considering the house was now his, but he rarely stayed overnight. At the small piano factory, he moved from merely sweeping floors and other odd jobs to helping string the wires in the instruments. He had an ear for sound and quickly learned through an apprenticeship the ins and outs of being a stringer. A full-fledged stringer he was not, for that process took years, and, as luck would have it, the business, which was slow when he first came in, quickly got worse. Chicago had about three dozen or so piano factories before the war, producing some of the best pianos in the world. Although the war did much to dampen business, some of the large manufacturers, like Kimball and Hamilton, were pushing out the smaller businesses. It didn't seem like people were much buying Bishop pianos any longer. It was only a matter of time before his uncle would close the door of the family business for good. And that day came in June of 1917. 
His uncle was tearful when he gathered together his 15 employees, a couple of whom had been working at Bishop Piano since it opened shortly after the fire in 1871. Robert's grandfather, Theodore, had opened the business and it became the trade for his two sons, William and Henry. William was the older bishop brother and Robert's father. The business was good for a time, allowing William the ability to move to a nice home in the north in Evanston. Steam trains provided convenient transportation to downtown Chicago, and once the elevated train was extended in 1908, Bill could take that line directly to Music Row on Wabash. He proudly rode the very first car on the very first day of service. He kept that ticket stub in the rim of his bowler and was wearing it when he died ascending the very stairs of the train he so loved to take just one year after its opening. The shop was strangely quiet when he arrived the day after Henry's announcement. Many of the workers had already left, paying visits, no doubt, to the other piano factories in the area to look for work. Sawdust still littered the floor, the smell of drying lumber still vivid. Henry was in his office, smoking a cigar by the window and gazing down at the trains as they roared by every ten minutes or so. The trains shook the whole building when they passed, sending billows of sawdust to the floor of the sanding room from tables and wooden panels, often covering recently made footprints. It reminded Robert of snow, and in moments of boredom he would sometimes write words in the dust and count how many passes it took for his message to be completely covered. Uncle Henry, said Robert as he slowly entered the office. Henry turned and smiled briefly. The factory was a dirty place and no one was exempt from dirt and dust. But there, even on a day when work was no longer being conducted, Robert could see the evidence. A single tear had recently wiped a clean trail down his uncle's cheek. Robert, sit down, he said, gently balancing the cigar on the edge of the desk. Henry often smoked his cigars at work, and with all the wood and dust, Robert was always amazed that the entire building didn't just spontaneously combust. It seemed several moments before the silence was broken. Well, this is it, said Henry at last. Forty-five years of business. It was good while it lasted. He picked up his cigar again, puffing smoke that soon swirled around his head. So what are your plans, Rob? Robert hadn't actually thought about that. He knew the day would come when the business would close, but had not given any thought at all to what he would do in the future. Probably just assumed that he would get a job somewhere else in another place that built pianos. Continue the apprenticeship. I am not sure, he replied. Well, the war may make that decision for you. You consider enlisting? No, he replied quickly. His uncle knew this to be his answer, for they both held different opinions on the war, and Robert rarely brought up the topic because he did not want to cause tension between himself and his uncle. His uncle had been good to him, and it just didn't seem right to create waves, even though Robert had been against the war from the start and had actually participated in some of the peace demonstrations to occur in town. He wasn't an official member of any group, but he had no problems publicly announcing his opposition. Even with the recent declaration of war, Robert did not see how what was happening in Europe had anything to do with him. 
the Europeans have been slaughtering each other for a good three years now. No need for Americans to start spilling their blood as well in the trenches of Europe. I know you're not 21, but there's talk of lowering the age of registration to 18. And then you would have to go, if called, that is. He took another puff of the cigar. Now, if I were younger, I wouldn't hesitate. It's our duty. I know you like hanging out with the Krauts and eat Kraut food and drink Kraut beer, but there comes a time when you must stand up for what is right. Robert shifted in his seat. It was uncomfortable. I just don't think that is for me, he said. I know. Sorry, Robert. You do remind me sometimes of my brother. You got his look, and I'm sure if he were around today, he would be right with you. Henry often treated Robert like his own son and had to consciously remind himself at times that Robert was his nephew, not his own flesh and blood. William died when Robert was only 10 years old, and he had become the son that Henry never had. To Robert, Uncle Henry was, in many respects, more of a father than an uncle. Henry and Aunt Carol had three children, all girls, and only one lived past infancy. Margaret was currently 22 and married to a retailer in Buffalo. Being an only child, Maggie was like a sister to Robert, and now that both of his parents were gone, he truly missed her company as did his uncle. Robert suspected that, with the closing of the business, his aunt and uncle would be making the move to New York, too. Then, Robert would truly be alone. Henry sat down in the very squeaky chair that had served the desk since the opening of Bishop Pianos and pulled a slip of paper out of the top drawer. Robert could tell it was a telegram. Got this the other day from my cousin, who runs the post in a small town in Iowa. He heard about the business and said that he needed some help for a while. Delivering mail, I guess. I ain't going to live in some small town. I'll survive here. Besides, Carol would never go. He dropped the telegram on the desk in front of Robert. I don't think you've ever met Art. He rarely leaves that town of his. I think the last time I saw him was with your dad back in 05 or so. I know he was in town for the fair some 20 years ago, but he rarely makes it out here. I remember father mentioning him. Me, your father, and Art spent some summer swimming in the lake. Good times, really. He leaned back in the chair as an elevated train shook past the building, sending some of the ash from his cigar to the floor. I seem to remember father saying something about Art and his dogs. Henry chuckled. <laughs> Last time we heard, Art had a pack of dogs, ten or something like that. He's got a big house, plenty of space. He glanced down at the telegram. Room for you if you want. Robert picked up the telegram. So this is why his uncle wanted to see him today, he thought. I wired Art back and told him that you might be interested. Now, you don't have to do this, but I thought it might be a good opportunity for you. You can stay with him and work a bit at post. Stay as long as you like, really. Might be good for you to get out of Chicago for a bit. Get some fresh country air. Robert smiled and lived with the dogs. Become part of the pack, his uncle replied. Robert turned the telegram over in his hands. He had never really left the Chicago area before. He considered himself to be a creature of the city and had no idea what to expect living in a small town. He'd probably have a hard time sleeping without the rumbling of the train that shook his bed at night. I'll give it a thought, he said at last. What are you going to do? Survive.
probably visit Maggie for a while. Robert stood. Thanks, Uncle Henry, for everything. Wire Art with your decision. Let him know if you're coming or not. Anyway, I think he'd love to see you. Henry then stood and wiped his hands on his pants. And don't forget about us here. You are family, you know. You can visit us anytime. He held out his hand, which Robert took. His uncle wasn't usually very emotional, but Robert could tell that he was holding back. He swallowed loudly, his teeth slightly clenched. He then let go of Robert's hand and picked up the cigar. I guess I better go, said Robert. Gonna have a kraut beer with my kraut friends. Henry let out a slight laugh. Have one for me. You bet, Robert replied. And when you see Maggie, tell her I said hello. Henry told him that he would and then turned rather swiftly back to the window. No doubt to hide the tears that Robert could tell were coming. So that was chapter three of Lilac Wine, the novel in progress I am writing. I uh, really enjoyed writing that chapter because of the fact that I got to write about Chicago. Now, I grew up in the Chicago area. My parents are Chicagoans. We would always go into the city, love the city of Chicago, and in particular, love its history. As a history teacher, I kind of relish those moments when I get to dive into uh, the history of something. And Chicago, of course, is full of history. And I've always been fascinated by some of the events of the city of Chicago. And the Eastland, of course, is one of those events. And it makes an appearance in Chapter 3 talking about Robert and his dreams. Robert's dreams, of course, are going to be a big part of this story because he has these, these premonitions. Um, and so we have McKinley in that chapter, the Eastland in this chapter as well. Uh, we'll also have in later chapters the Iroquois fire, one of the worst fires in um, the United States. That's going to come up. Uh, Robert's a lot like me. Now, go figure. I think Abelia and Robert, they're kind of different sides of me. Robert has a love affair with movies, and Charlie Chaplin is his favorite, and we're going to be seeing that in an upcoming chapter as well. But what was really nice about this chapter is being able to do some research on you know, the Eastland disaster, on the Leland Hotel Piano Row in Chicago. I had no idea before embarking on this journey that Chicago was one, at one time, the leading piano producers in the world. And there is this great shot. Uh, I put it up on Instagram of Wabash and Piano Row or Music Row, as it was also known. And I wanted to situate Robert and his family solidly in Chicago history. And so we have Evanston there. Um, 
We're going to be going back to Evanston later in the book. So right now, we are alternating between two different worlds, the world of Abelia out in Iowa near Dubuque and the world of Robert, you know, the urban center. And this really is the crux of what this period of time was about in U.S. history. I mean, we are teetering on the verge of becoming an urban country. And that urbanness versus the kind of agricultural nature that America was founded on is going to be a primary conflict that fueled the 1920s. And it, it really begins here in the period of time before World War I or just as we entered World War I and we're entering the modern world. This is when America loses its innocence. And this is the world in which I have situated these two characters, you know, right on the verge of a loss of innocence. So uh, in the next chapter, we're going to be visiting Conrad Mueller's Tavern. And uh, that was fun to write, too. Uh, and the whole thing with the war and Conrad being a German immigrant, as Chicago was full of German immigrants. Prohibition is kind of taking over the country at this point, and pretty soon it's going to be a national thing. Chicago resisted for a long time, and Chicago, of course, is going to get the reputation in the 20s of continuing that resistance to prohibition with Al Capone and the speakeasies and so forth. And a lot of that resistance was because of the German immigrants that came to Chicago and built breweries and saloons. And so there was a particular saloon culture in Chicago at the time and uh, a lot of stuff I didn't know. And so I am looking forward to reading that one as well. And that'll be, that'll be in the next chapter, chapter four, which will drop next week. In the meantime, go to lilacwinenovel.com. I have a message board up there, and you are welcome to comment, to question, anything that you hear here. If you would like to make a comment or you know some other observation about the novel, there are several different categories that you could do it. You could ask me a question at any time. You could make comments. You can make suggestions as well, constructive criticism is always appreciated. So until next week, I am Bruce Janu. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. 
that podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.